Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and what we celebrate this morning, the birth of Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, God with us. Lord, we are so grateful, and as we join together this morning, our hearts are knit together in love, and they're directed at you. All our praise, all of our worship, all of our gratitude are just pointed to you, Lord. You are so good. And this morning, we celebrate your goodness together as a body of Christ and across the whole world, Lord. People celebrating this amazing event, the most amazing thing that's ever happened to mankind, that God came into the world. And so this morning, Lord, we pray that you would continue to minister to our hearts, to each individual that's here, Lord. We pray that um, your will would be done, and we pray that this Christmas would be special would be amazing, and that you would be the center of everything that we do, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, Thank you. This morning, we're going to grab the kids in a little bit from upstairs and and bring them down, and uh, we're going to do some more worship and have a candlelight service in the morning. So, Merry Christmas Eve morning, and um, we're going to get into God's Word. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to the book of Numbers this morning, which is in the beginning of your Bibles, the book of Numbers. And the reason we're turning here for our Christmas message is for the past three weeks, We've been looking at the promise of His coming. So what we're celebrating and commemorating and thinking about this morning, Jesus' birthday, the birth of Christ, this unusual event that changed the world. This was something that was foretold and promised. It's amazing as we think about Christmas and this Christmas season falls upon us every year, just to think about how it it is easy to miss the whole purpose of Christmas. Imagine just going through the motions and all the extraneous things that are involved in Christmas and and missing the fact that we're celebrating the, the birth of Christ. So think about that for yourself today. Think about right now, how excited are you that God came into the world, that Christ was born. I mean, where, where is your passion level for the reality that God came to save us? And that's the reality. And the Old Testament told us about that. In the Old Testament, we have pictures, types, previews, things of coming attractions. So when Jesus came, it, it wasn't just something that happened at that moment, but it's something that was prophesied and predicted and given to us in many, many, many ways. And so we've been looking at those ways. We started off uh, a few weeks ago looking at how the Bible in Genesis 3.15 said that um, God would come into this, this world being from the seed of a woman. This was an unusual prophecy. This was a, 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 a an event that anybody who knows just a little bit about biology would know that, well, that's not how it works. 
It's not through a seed of a woman that a child is born. Women don't have seeds. They have what? Hey, a few biology people. Yes. They have eggs, not seeds. So this unusual prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that through the seed of a woman, the dominion of Satan would be broken. The head of Satan would be crushed and and then the prophet Isaiah said that a child would be born from a virgin. So this 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 prophecy was just so unusual and also so amazing, but it was meant to be a sign. There are signs everywhere. There are signs historically, there are signs archaeologically, there are signs in every aspect of life of of God almost screaming in every way to get our attention that we would simply look to him and be saved. And that's the purpose. And so we looked at this amazing prophecy from Genesis, but, but then we saw something also unusual in, in Genesis 22, where it was told to us that this God who would be born of a virgin, that he would actually do something that you would not expect God to do, and that was to be a sacrifice. That God himself would be the sacrifice. That he would be the one that would provide for us because we could not provide our, on our own. That he would be the one that would save us because we couldn't be saved on our own. There was nothing we can do to change our condition of sinfulness being born as sinners into this world and so we we looked at this story that was a a preview of of Christ being the sacrifice or the atonement of our sin as we looked at Abraham and the uh, sacrifice that God had called him to do of his son Isaac but God stopped him and said I myself will provide the sacrifice And so we get another sign, another preview, another hint of God saying, look, all of these things that have been foreshadowed, they they have meaning, that that they have substance, that that what you're seeing is something, there's a reality to all those things. And, And that's why when Jesus came and John the Baptist saw him, he pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why did he say that? Because he knew the things that the Old Testament said. He knew that these sacrifices would hint or point to a one last atoning sacrifice of God being a sacrifice for sins of the world. So when we think about Jesus being born, it it means all these different things. They are signs, the way he was born to tell us, look, Are you paying attention? And that's a a good thing to think about this morning is, are we paying attention? Are we paying attention now? Because did you know you live in a world, in a time where prophecy has been fulfilled, but it's being fulfilled right now, right? The second prophecy is being fulfilled and pointing to Jesus' second coming. And are you awake to that? Are you understanding that the events that are going on that we often see um, in our Twitter screen, uh, scrolls or in, on the news or whatever it is, that these things mean something. These are not random 
things, these are meaningful things that the Bible has prophesied that will happen. So today we're going to look at another picture, another type, another foreshadowing of something that God was going to do when he came, and that was to be the Savior of the world. So why did he come? Why did he come? To be the Savior of the world. He came to be the Savior of the world. That's why he came. What does that mean to us? Well, you know, the Bible says for some it doesn't mean anything. You know why? The Bible says that there's a veil over those who don't believe. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it actually says that to those who are perishing, that they have a veil covering their eyes that they can't see. And the reason that they can't see is because they won't believe. Not that they can't believe, they won't believe. There are people that have taken a position of separation from God. You know why? That's what sin does. Sin separates us from God and it separates us from people. Sin, when sin entered into the world, it made people hide. It made Adam and Eve hide. They hid from God. Why? Sin makes us hide. It makes us want to stay away from God. And so I want to encourage you here today, maybe you have pushed God away. Maybe you, somewhere down the line, have had a relationship with God or had interest in God, but now you're pushing him away for whatever reason, and maybe the Lord wants to speak to you today. But the most important thing is to start off in just being willing. It has to mean something, right? There has to be some truth. There has to be some reality. And as we look at the scriptures, we understand this is the reality. There's, there's not a reality that's more real than the reality that we see in God's word. So he came to fulfill a promise. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the promise of being a savior. In fact, in the book of Luke, chapter 2, a very familiar Christmas story account. If you've seen Charlie Brown's account of Christmas, this is what was read But in Luke chapter 2, it says, For there is born to you this day. This is a particular time that the Bible foretold that this would happen. And it was in a particular location. It says, In the city of David. And it says, The Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So no wonder there were those who were very excited. They had long awaited and heard about a savior. They realized they needed a savior, and Jesus was that one who had come to be the answer to all of their problems, but most specifically to their one biggest problem, and that was to save us from sin. So that's what we sort of understand in John 3.16, that very <clears throat> common scripture for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Now, why is that important? 
because one may think that when Jesus was born or because of his birth, then the world would be better. But when Jesus came, he came to do something even bigger than saving the world, and that was to save souls. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe would not perish. He's talking about eternally. He's talking about spiritually. He's not talking about having a better world. Would not perish, but instead have eternal life. And therein we find the whole reason Jesus was born, that one would not perish, but have eternal life. That is the whole statement. And so later we find this statement from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 15, where it says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, Christmas, to save sinners. That's why he came. And then Titus 3, 4 says this, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, you know what that means? If anyone thinks that they could be good enough to be saved, then you are denying the very purpose of the Savior. Not by works of righteousness, not by anything that we can do to be right in the sight of God. But according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so the Old Testament, if you're in Numbers, chapter, one, or chapter 21, it gives us all these different ways to understand the meaning of Christmas. Old Testament gives us these examples, these types, these pictures, and all these things. And some, sometimes we think, well, this Old Testament is very hard to read. It's very hard to understand. But when we understand, it's stories and pictures and things that really happen, but they all point to Jesus Christ. And here we have an example of that. Here we see this picture of the promise in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, if you will join me there. So the story, the spotlight goes on the children of Israel. The children of Israel and the reason the spotlight is on them in the Bible is because it was through the children of Israel, through the nation of Israel, through the Jews, that God would form a nation to bring about the Savior. The Savior would come through the Jewish nation. Jesus would come through the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. And so God worked in special ways through the Jews here in our text, he had delivered them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And God had brought them out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land or the land that he, 
He was going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey where they would be able to thrive and be a testimony of God and to God. But yet when they got to the edge or the border of the promised land, their lack of faith caused them not to go in. That generation then did not go in, did not fulfill the plan that God had for their life, and they wandered in the wilderness. They didn't go in. They stayed in the desert for 40 years. That generation had died off, and this is a new generation. And God now is bringing them into the promised land. So you'll notice in uh, chapter 21 of Numbers, verse 4, it says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor to or by the way of the Red Sea. They're journeying to the place where God had taken them or wanted them to be in the promised land. They are on this journey to understand and to know God so that when they got in the promised land, they, they, they would represent him properly. And so as they're on this journey, it tells us that they were to go around the land of Edom. Now, this detour, this was a detour because this wasn't the best way to go to where they were going. Because of conflict in the land of Edom from the Edomites, they had to go around. And this proved to be that last straw. As they had to go around and as they had been already journeying, as they already had their ancestors die in the wilderness. And now this was just one more thing. They couldn't go straight to where they were going. They had to go around the land of Edom. Edom. And it says that the soul of the people became very discouraged. Sort of like if, you, you know, if you're going somewhere and then all of a sudden you hit traffic and it's going to be 30 minutes longer or if you run into street closures because of a parade or something and and you just wanted to get to where you're going and you already had a bad morning and you're on your way and next thing you know you hit a detour you have to go around you have to go the long way and, this, and those things uh, have a tendency, especially when other things have been accumulated, to bring out the worst in us. And when I say bring out the worst in us, what we're seeing is really this is bringing out in the children of Israel the truth in them. In other words, situations often bring about who we really are. And what the children of Israel are example of us here in the text are a people who God is bringing to himself in a relationship, and yet they're not understanding that they have a sinful heart. This situation is revealing to them their sinful heart. And it is as this accumulation of difficulties and trials have been building up this one last thing, caused them to reveal what was really in their heart. Look at verse 5. They spoke against God. That's the first time in the Bible that we read against God. We see that 
phrase in the book of Job, chapter 34, verse 37, but it, Job was actually chronologically written before the book of Numbers. But in our Bible, chronologically, this is the first time we see that phrase. But it's a, a phrase that is common throughout Scripture because the heart of man is against God. The Bible says that mankind is at enmity with God. That means that we are born as enemies of God, rebellious towards God. This happened through the sin in the Garden of Eden where sin entered in to mankind. So all of mankind has to face the reality of our sinful condition before God. The children of Israel here, they've been pressed like a, maybe like a sponge being squeezed. So what's really in their heart has come out at this particular time that they were rebellious against God. They had a rebellious nature against God. And the Bible tells us that is the story of all mankind. It says that it was in the soul that they were discouraged. So the deepest part of them, the deepest part of them got to a place where they looked at the world, they looked at themselves, they didn't like what they saw. This word discourage is just a, a condition that often happens to all of mankind where we just feel like giving up. It says they are very discouraged and it was in the deepest part of their being and as a result of that, then their actions begin to reveal where their heart was as they spoke against God and Moses. And the Bible says, out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth speaks. As they're speaking against God, look what they say. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Why have you brought us here? Do you know why God brought them out of Egypt? They asked him. That's why. They pleaded with him. God, send us a deliverer. We don't like Egypt. We're slaves in Egypt. They're mean to us in Egypt. Egypt treats us like we're slaves, we're their slaves, and whatever they tell us to do, we do it. And they beat us, and they hate us, and we don't like living like this. Will you please save us? And God said, yes. And so God raised up Moses. He answered their prayer. And God brought them out of Egypt. Egypt, by the way, in the Bible, is a, a picture or a type of the world. And how God delivers us out of the world through a deliverer, Moses, is a type of Jesus Christ. But the condition of their heart caused them to miss the purpose and the reason that God had brought them out. You see, they weren't living for God as God had called them to do. They wanted to be out of their bad condition, but they didn't want to live for God. And so because of that, 
their heart was rebellious and revealed that rebellion and they're speaking against God and Moses, the man of God. And they're questioning God. Why did you bring us here? They forgot they asked. They forgot that this was an answer to prayer. Why did they forget? It just didn't look like they thought. It was different than they thought. And so their leaving of Egypt didn't cause them to leave their desire to live for themselves and live for the world. And that's where the problem is. You see, when God calls us to himself, he calls us also to leave our old life in the world, in bondage and slavery to the world, so that now we're living to serve his purposes. And so so they're complaining against God. And then notice what they say. There's no food and no water. So they're hangry. (laughs) There's something about how being hungry will bring out the worst of us. But the thing is, Here's the amazing thing. God had been providing for them. Their ancestors, he provided for them. God himself directly for over 40 years. Now he's providing for them. So God is miraculously providing for them. What did they not like? They wanted something else, something other, something different. God was teaching them, however, to be satisfied with what he provides. He was teaching them to live by faith and not by sight. And so it was these many difficulties that pressed in on them. And then finally, they they got to the place where they started to rebel against what God was doing and his plan for them. And then it comes out that they were really frustrated and discouraged because of what they saw as a lack of provision, but yet there is no grocery store, no 7-Eleven, no convenience stores, no food. They're on the move. They didn't have their own farms. They didn't have anything, and God was providing for them. But yet, at the same time, their minds are deceived. Do you notice that? You've brought us to die in the wilderness. That's what they thought, number one. Did God, was that what God was doing? Was God going to do that? Was that what he's? It's not what he's doing at all. And God told them that, and they knew that, but their hearts being revealed that they don't like what God's doing in their life. And then they're saying there's no food, no water. They're in their minds, they're wrong because they know they had food and water. And it even says that. Look what it says next. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. So they had food in their same sentence. They're saying, we don't have food, but we don't like the food that you're giving us. Have you ever said, I'm starving. We don't have anything to eat. Well, make yourself a sandwich. We have, you know, peanut butter and jelly in there. I don't want that. Well, I thought you said you're starving. I am. I just don't want to eat that. Well, well, what do you you want? In-N-Out burger. Well, 
Well, we can't go there right now, but I'm starving. But see, that's a, a funny way to look at this, but it's a serious thing that's going on. They called the bread that God provided for them as worthless bread. So what it all comes down to is what we're seeing here is a picture of the human heart without God. An unredeemed, unsaved, godless heart that hates one's life in this world, that desires things that cannot be had and a heart that is not satisfied in God and God alone. And that's what he was teaching them. Because if any of our hearts are not satisfied in God and God alone, we will be like this. We will want, we will crave, we will desire, we will go after the things of the world. And this condition is the setup for all sorts of sins. It's a discontented heart, unsatisfied heart. But what God is teaching them is that our hearts can only be satisfied in Him. That there's nothing in the world that can satisfy a human heart. That's because God made the human heart to only be satisfied in Him. And so we see this revealing of a depraved heart. We see this biblical teaching that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We see the setup for this Savior to come into this world, realizing there's nothing else that can fix the human heart. So look what happens next. This revealing of a sinful heart then finds that sin and the sinful heart requires judgment. So in verse 6, it says, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel, they died. Therefore, the people came to Moses, and they said, We have sinned. So this is a tipping point, if you will, where the children of Israel are recognizing because of the judgment or because of the repercussions or the effects of sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. There's no way around that. Sin equals death. Maybe that's death to something physical. People die because of death. Uh, because of sin. That's why people die when sin entered into the world. But it also means spiritual death. So the fruits of the Spirit, the things of God, the fullness of God, the reason that God created us to be in fellowship with Him, all those things die because of sin. Because sin equals death. There's no other way around it. They recognize this. It was hard not to. They're complaining and they're out in the wilderness, which, by the way, was more like desert, not like mountains. 
And they're, they're out in the, this wilderness. These snakes are going all over the place. And they're fiery, which probably relates to when they bite you, you would sting, and then you would die. They're poisonous snakes. So imagine if you didn't die yet. And they're all over the place. It'd be like all over in here. You're trying to listen to a message and you're looking all around and wondering, is there one under my seat? Is there one crawling on my neighbor? And you know, as soon as it bites you, you're, you're, you're toast, you're done. And so what do they do? What do people do if they're smart in a situation like this when they know they can't do anything about it and they know there's repercussions, they know it's serious, what you do is cry out to God. And many people have come to know Jesus personally as their Lord and Savior because of their condition that has happened as a result of sin. And they cry out to God and say, man, this isn't working. I've gone after the world and this is just not working. I don't like my life. I don't like all these things that keep happening. They cry, Lord, save me. A lot of times that's where people don't know what else to do or where else to go. And this is what the children of Israel did. And they cried out to God and they said the right thing. We have sinned. Notice that they took responsibility for their own sinful actions. They're not making excuses anymore. And they said, we have sin. And this is how someone gets saved. They recognize that they are sinners and say, Lord, I have sinned. And there's nothing I can do about it. You can't go to church enough to erase it. You can't be good enough to erase it. You can't sacrifice enough to erase it. You can't give to the poor enough to erase it. You can do all those things, but the fact remains you're still a sinner. That's the issue that needs to be dealt with. And so they say, we have sinned. They cry out to God, understanding that their sinful heart that was previously revealed must be judged. And then they say, why? They're understanding. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. And then they ask Moses, Moses, pray to the Lord that he, that God takes away the serpents from us. Pray that God will remove that. Do you see something so important here? They realize they need a Savior. Do you see that? Nothing else could be done. This judgment of their own sin is something that we have to understand that sin has to be judged. Sin requires judgment. It is right for God to judge sin. And they know that. And the children of Israel are recognizing that. And so they're crying out. Why are they doing that? They're crying out to God because they realize, well, He is the only one that can take away sin. So Moses prayed that God would take away the serpents. And Moses did. He prayed for the people. And as he's praying for the people, look at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Okay, Moses, here's what, what you do. Moses is praying. They realize they're sinners, God. They realize there's nothing they can do about their sin. 
God there, and they're crying out to you to save them. And God says, okay, Moses, I hear you. Here's what you do. Make a fiery serpent. Make one and put it on a pole. And when you do that, everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. He put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What is he talking about? Why is this the antidote? Why is this so important? Because he's pointing to something that would happen in the future. What do you mean? Well, the the good thing is the Bible actually tells us exactly. We don't have to guess. And here it is. Here's the fulfillment. John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Remember that story? We just read it. Remember that one? As Moses did that. So what does that tell us? That tells us in the Old Testament, it gives us examples and pictures and types of things that were fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus says it himself. He says, hey, look, remember Moses? Remember what happened? And Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. And they said, even so. So there's a comparison. Even as that happened, Must the Son of Man be lifted up? What is he talking about? He's talking about the cross. And you might be thinking, well, didn't Moses put a serpent on that pole? Isn't the serpent like related to evil? How is Jesus then comparable to that? And here's where it gets really good. Because do you remember what type of metal was to be used by Moses? Anybody? Bronze. You know what? Bronze is a picture of judgment. You know what this means? Jesus is that judged sin, that bronze serpent on the pole. Jesus became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. Jesus himself became sin. And so this picture that Moses painted for us was fulfilled by Jesus. And Jesus says it himself in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He says, whoever believes in him, that's looking. Remember, Moses said, look, if you're stung or bitten and you're about to die, look at the bronze serpent and you'll live. That means believe. Believe in the Savior. Believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you will live. And then in John 3.16, after that it says, you guys can help me out on this one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then I'll read this next part, because you might not have this memorized. Verse 17 says this, For God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but the world through Him might be saved. That's the message of Christmas. That's why Christmas to a believer and to a Christian is so amazing and so exciting. This is why the world wants to distract us from the true meaning of Christmas. And this is why all those who understand and know that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Christmas can be amazing for them too. Because Christmas is a celebration of God coming into the world to save us. And so if you're a sinner, which the Bible tells us we all are sinners, and if you say you're not a sinner, the Bible says that you're a liar. So you're a sinner. So what are you going to do about it? For those of us here who have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we've looked and believed in Jesus Christ. We're trusting in His sacrifice for us on the cross. We've been saved. It means something when He's our Savior. It's hard to sit idly by without any feeling and emotion when we think about what Jesus did for us. God came into the world. God took on human flesh so that he can go and die on the cross in our place. Merry Christmas. The Savior has come. Let's all stand and hopefully the kids will get here quickly. As we're standing and as the worship team is making their way up, I just want to say a couple things. If you are here and you don't know the Savior, it's good to be honest about that and with that and know if you're not saved, you're currently perishing without God. And that's eternal. And that's something that is worth our attention today. And if the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is God dying on the cross for our sins, if that doesn't mean anything to us and we're casual about it, it just is a demonstration that we're actually perishing. And so now is an opportunity. Here's the invitation. Right now, right where you are, you can cry out to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me. Save me. I believe in you. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at what you did on the cross, and now I want to put my faith in you. So you can do that right now, right in your seat. But I want to just encourage some of you that are believers, and maybe you've gotten away from your faith a little bit. So there's another, another reminder. 
God will always remind us about what's really important. So come back to Jesus and live for his purposes.